Under the Cortex is sponsored by Macmillan Learning Psychology. So much research is published every week in top scientific journals, but it's hard to keep up with all of it. In this new episode of Under the Cortex, we will round up some of the most recent research published in the journals of the Association for Psychological Science and present it to you. This is Ludmila Nunj, and you're listening to Under the Cortex, an Association for Psychological Science podcast. Hi, Andy. Thanks for joining me today. Hey, Ludmila. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Before we start today, I think it's great we have um, a quick introduction. I am Ludmila Nunj, the Science Advisor here at APS, and joining me today is Dr. Andy DeSoto, the Director of Government Relations at APS. Andy, would you like to explain what you do? Sure, absolutely. Um, so I'm a cognitive psychologist by training, Ludmila, as you know, um, but I, I head up APS's Government Relations work, and I like to describe that as really having three main parts. Uh, the first is that we advocate on behalf of the behavioral and social sciences uh, research and training to U.S. Congress and federal agencies and uh, internationally where, where we're able to do that. Uh, the second thing that we do is we keep our, our members and other folks up to date on developments of interest in the funding and policy landscape. Uh, so if you visit www.psychologicalscience.org slash policy, you can see a lot of the work that we do on that front, which involves um, helping organize and host webinars focused on funding opportunities and the like, the policymakers and, and other presentations and write-ups that might be of interest. And the last thing, and this is something that's increasingly important to APS and, and to our members, is that we advocate for the increased involvement of psychological science and behavioral and social science broadly in public policy making. Uh, as you know so well, there's so much that our science is able to contribute to so many ongoing challenges and the like that face us. And our science is not always represented where it ought to be. So we do what we can to, to make sure that, that all audiences are, are aware of the contributions of, of our field very broadly and, and that it's, it's leveraged where it's, where it's able to be. Um, so some of this, I think, will come up during our conversation today. But um, for sure, uh, if any interested listeners want to know a little bit more about APS's government relations program, please do feel free to reach out to me directly or visit that website that I mentioned earlier. Yeah, that's all great. I know a lot about the great work you've been doing. And it's really important that we talk about this research and we show, we also show how it can be applied to improve people's lives overall. Absolutely right. So let's dive in in our little selection for this week. Sure. And, and thank you for identifying some of these papers that, that you've been excited about, Ludmilla, that, that have come out recently. The first one that I want to share with our, our listeners is a paper titled Cultures Crossing, The Power of Habit in Delaying Gratification. The lead author on this paper is Kaichi Yanaoka, and one of APS's members, Satoru Saito, is also uh, a co-author on this, this publication that comes from our, our flagship journal, Psychological Science. And um, our, our listeners may be interested to know that this particular paper was pre-registered and that the authors of the paper made their prediction about how the paper was going to turn out before they, they embarked on, on data collection and, and analysis. 
This is a really interesting paper because it uh, takes a, a cross-cultural approach to a very important topic in psychology, psychological science, which is the delay of gratification. I think many listeners, uh, whether you come from a background in psychological science or not, will be familiar with the uh, with the marshmallow task, the marshmallow experiment, which assesses uh, a young child's ability to choose to, to wait for a little while to be able to, to benefit from, in this case, two marshmallows, a second marshmallow, second task, or whether the impulse is to is to eat that marshmallow immediately. And there's been a lot of really interesting research since those those landmark experiments that have explored how whether individuals have that impulse control and are able to wait in exchange for an additional marshmallow or or gobble it right up immediately and how that can correlate with all sorts of uh, later life outcomes. Um, but the reason this paper is so interesting is it examines that delay of gratification, the ability to to wait for in this case, the food or the marshmallow in both United States children and children who are in Japan, and also looks at a similar result for not in this case, holding off eating, but also holding off or delaying gratification to wait for uh, opening a gift. So in this experiment, they, they examined whether American and Japanese youth would be able to delay their gratification for both eating that marshmallow, eating the food, and opening the gift. And really interesting to compare those two findings. And, and what was really interesting about this paper is that the authors found that in the United States, the, the children were able to delay their impulse control and de delay their, their gratification longer for gifts than for food. But it was the opposite in Japan, where uh, waiting to eat was more common in Japan in the United States. So, so again, really interesting paper in that it took this experimental methodology that's been an important backbone of a lot of psychological science studies in the past and added this really interesting cross-cultural component and examined the ability to, to delay gratification for uh, opening gifts in particular. Cool paper. Mm -hmm. It's a really cool paper. And I wonder if in the future people will actually repeat this study and try to see the implications for the success in later life that is usually associated with the ability to delay gratification if it's also going to depend on the culture? Yeah, I, you know, one of the reasons it's such a funny study is because we're all so familiar with this experience too, the experience of sitting down at the table and um, maybe your, your restaurant entrees are delivered, but one person at your table is not. And how long do you wait? And what are the social norms and the etiquette involved? And same thing, gathering around uh I know, a Christmas tree or another holiday to, to celebrate a celebrate a holiday and, and when is it safe and acceptable to begin opening gifts and it really is different across cultures and I think the the findings that have been described in this study really cement that yeah and it's funny because in Europe I feel that we actually wait more uh, so I'm European if our listeners don't know um, we tend to wait more for food than for opening gifts. So I wonder if we would be more similar to Japanese children than to the American children. Good idea for a follow-up study. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> I'm giving ideas here. <laughs> so another interesting one, completely different, was this article that was also published in Psychological Science and also pre-registered. So our authors are following good open science practices. So this article called Deception Cues During High-Risk Situations, 911 Homicide Calls was authored by Patrick M. Markey and a team of researchers. And what the researchers did here 
was examining whether certain cues could indicate that 911 callers were actually not innocent, meaning they could be involved in the homicide they were reporting. So they asked judges to rate the cues displayed by a sample of 911 homicide callers, and they found that deceptive callers tended to display overtly emotional cues, so they acted more moody, more nervous, they also acted more overwhelmed, and they tended to tell unclear narratives. All of these by comparison with non-deceptive callers, of course. The authors also indicate that this pattern of deceptive cues could be used to help establish guilt or innocence of the caller in different samples of 911 callers. So these results indicate that maybe law enforcement officers and others could use this pattern of cues uh, identified here and displayed during emergency calls to identify whether the call is deceptive or not. And this could potentially be used also to help identifying people and areas of interest in a homicide. I see some potential for policy here. Uh, what do you think, Andy? Yeah, I, I think so. I think the value of a really interesting and compelling uh, initial study like this really does have potential implications. One of the things that, that I always look to, especially for articles that are published in psychological science, and Ludmilla, you know this, is that uh, many of our articles, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, maybe it's all of our all the articles published in psychological science come with a statement of relevance. Yep, all of them do. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, and I really recommend for, for folks who are interested in, in learning about an author's vision for how this work might be publicly relevant or relevant to a larger community, do go straight to that, that statement of relevance that's published on the Psychological Science articles because it does give that example. I think this article in particular is a really great example of the value and importance of psychological science because understanding and, and identifying deception is such an important topic and, and important for so many reasons. Uh, 911 is just one example. But a lot of people may have uh, lay theories uh, and beliefs about how deception is identified. And that's the reason that we need, we need these studies is because some of those pre-existing beliefs we have about how we identify deception may be true, they may be false, and we really need the scientific research to identify. So the evidence that this paper presents, that there are some ways that deception can be identified over a 911 call is, is really critical. Back to the potential policymaking context. In our work, we don't work too closely with police departments or, or the like they may be receiving these calls. But I think increasingly across the United States, and I think in other countries too, there's increasing appetite for applying some of these insights from psychological science into decision making. And I think many potential audiences who do have to make these split second decisions about do I do I trust this person? Do I not trust? Is this somebody telling the truth? Is this like the paper suggests, maybe even the perpetrator of a crime? Is it someone who is just just trying to, to prank or cause trouble? Anything that can help these departments make these really important split second decisions is is really, really important and interesting. Yeah. As you said, there is an appetite for this information. It's just probably difficult for these departments to also find it. And that's part of what we try to do. Uh, did you select more 
something else for this week? Yes. Something lighter, maybe? Yeah, yeah I, I know. Something <laughs> that'll make us all uh, maybe maybe smile and grin. Uh, a, a pun a pun that's around the corner. Um, with a true smile. <laughs> yeah, with a true smile. Um, this paper is titled, More What Duchenne Smiles Do, Less What They Express. And the paper is authored by Eva Krumhuber and a fellow of APS, Arvid Kappas, and published in Perspectives in Psychological Science. And I bet just about every listener of this podcast will have read something about this phenomenon of, of Duchenne smiles, which are um, these smiles that involve the mouth and eyes and are, are understood to signal sort of true enjoyment or appreciation. And if you, like me, had the prior understanding that these smiles, these Duchenne smiles, are how you can actually tell whether whether somebody's actually happy or just faking it. Uh, this paper really really sets those beliefs in doubt. Um, the authors look into and examine all the literature that's been that's been cited on on these Duchenne smiles, and um, I'll, I'll just just quote something that you've shared previously, Ludmilla, that these findings are inconclusive, they're irrelevant, they're incomplete. And on top of it, they show that individuals are actually able to manufacture Duchenne smiles, uh, even when they um, don't feel positive things. You know, and, and thinking about it now, this paper does relate a little bit to the one that we were just talking about, and that um, something that I think the scientific community believed was very often associated with positive emotion, uh, it sets that into doubt a little bit. And uh, I think the work by Krumhuber and, and Kappas here that, that's uh, in this paper say, well, maybe maybe we as scientists have a lot more to, to know about this uh, this particular phenomenon and, and what it means. So the previous paper we described said, well, here are some things that we know are associated with a particular outcome. And then this, this particular paper says, well, some things that we thought were may not be the case. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Yes, that's true. I agree with that. But an interesting approach that the authors also took in the paper was making us think that maybe these true smiles, or maybe they're not that truth, that truthful, but they still might have an important function because not of what they show, but of what they cause. Because when we see someone portraying this true smile, we might actually feel better about that person, we might form a more positive impression, and we might be more willing to to help that person, for example. Hence the title, uh, it's more about what they can do than what they are actually expressing. So it's also a cool approach, I think. I agree. It's, an, it's a neat paper. And uh, something to smile about. I'm sure the authors who, who write this paper, they probably roll their eyes a lot at all the jokes people make, but uh, very cool paper. Maybe I'll move on to another one. Yes, please. Uh, The title of this paper, again, published in Perspectives on Psychological Science, is titled Wrecked by Success, Not to Worry. And uh, the lead author is Harrison Kell and features work from APS fellows David Lubinsky and Camilla Benbow. I was not familiar with this hypothesis, this wrecked by success hypothesis, uh, until I I learned more about this paper. Um, Apparently, it was initially formalized by Freud, and it suggests that uh, when you're really successful in your occupation, uh, it has um, significant negative impact on psychological, interpersonal, physical well-being. But, uh, you know, it it, it examines this phenomenon uh, by comparing Um, participants with exceptionally successful careers. Um, You know, the authors didn't include me in the data collection, I hate to say, but... But they explain why your life is still good. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> exactly, <laughs> that's right. People who are are really successful, they compare people uh, to more people who are not as successful, maybe are more average or more typical, and they uh, compare these two groups on a variety of different factors: um, psychological well-being, how they evaluate themselves, whether they've had uh, medical issues, uh, uh, challenges, or or particularly positive family relationships. And you know what? They find at the end of the day, um, these people who are remarkably successful and these people who are, have more of an average level of success, they're about the same on many of these factors. Um, so as the title suggests, uh, if you're particularly successful, it's unlikely that you're going to be wrecked by it, at least uh, per, per the, the analysis these individuals have, have, uh, have, have conducted. So I can breathe a sigh of relief. <laughs> True. And also, uh, people who are not that successful by any standards, um, by these career standards or the way they feel socially, they, actually, they also can sigh in relief because they, they're also not feeling worse than the people who are more successful. Oh, that's a good, um, very good point. Yes, absolutely right. Okay. And I think I'm going to end our research roundup with an article published in Psychological Science authored by APS fellow Klaus Oberauer. And the title of this one is Little Support for Discrete Item Limits in Visual Working Memory. So I'm going to be talking a little bit um, about more basic science that we might not see immediate applications in our daily lives, but it's really important that this science is being conducted because this is what allows us to reframe theories and abandon some theories and create new ones. So this one is particularly interesting. It's about visual working memory. So the visual content that we can hold in our memory and use it very rapidly. So things that we might not need to keep for a long-term recall. We might not need to remember these things in one or two days, but we need to remember them almost immediately after we saw them. So in this article, what Oberauer did was replicating some experiments that had examined how many items people could recall immediately in this type of immediate memory. So what Oberauer did in this article was redoing some previous experiments that had indicated that likely people would have a discrete number of slots in their visual working memory, and then they would be able to hold one object in each slot and then recall those objects. So Oberauer here found support for an alternative theory that would say that instead of that, what people have is variable degrees of strength and precision to which they encode and they keep those features in their visual working memory. So how did he study this? So he showed participants colored squares and then asked them to immediately remember the color of the squares. And these were presented in sequence and then participants could remember in the sequence they preferred. Previous studies had indicated that participants were able to recall up to six of these colors, but then they would just start guessing. And they also showed a preference for reporting first the ones that they were more certain about. 
But this is not what Oberar found. What he found was that people didn't exactly guess the colors. They were pretty sure about what they were producing or they were not. And also, where some people guessed, had a preference for guessing, others didn't. And the heterogeneity of these results support the hypothesis that rather than visual working memory having this discrete limit, so this slot, some individuals might decide to guess on the hard trials, whereas others might not. And also they did guess only when they had weak information in memory, but not consistently. Others would just not guess. So this is an interesting one. It's interesting because it presents contradictory findings to a different study and also shows that the theory, the idea that we have these fixed slots in our working memory and it has a limited number might not be true. It will probably depend on the individual, it will depend on the context, and probably on the task. Like, if there is a cost to guess or not, this could probably change these trends. Well, it's a neat study, Lemuel, and just one of the takeaways for me is just how how amazing and dynamic our brain's um, sensory and cognitive systems are to be able to respond to this complicated information, to respond to the demands of the task and individual differences in, in memory or the strength of what was encoded and, and to be able to respond accurately. It's, it's a, a sophisticated study that really shows how amazing these perceptual processes are. So thank you for, for summarizing that. I, I think every time I, I hear about these really interesting visual experiments, um, almost like a little game of Simon remembering things that have been, that have been displayed. I just am, am impressed by, by everything that our, our brains do without even thinking about it. So thanks for capturing that. Yeah, I, th- I thought this one was really interesting. And also the procedure itself, as you said, it's almost these games. But then it ends up being so hard to explain because everything is so controlled and we need to study these things very precisely. So I think we are done for this week. It was uh, great chatting with you about the most recent research we published. And I hope to talk to you soon. Absolutely. Thanks for letting me join and and have a chance to chat with you and, and looking forward to being on to discuss more in the future. Macmillan Learning's Achieve for Psychology sets a whole new standard for integrating assessments, activities, and analytics into your teaching. And Achieve is now home to Macmillan's new video collection for introductory psychology, an extraordinary archive of 220 in-demand videos, including classic clips, contemporary footage, and exclusive original content. Developed in partnership with the faculty and student advisory board, it's a remarkably diverse and relevant resource, with videos tagged to the seven themes in the American Psychological Association's new Intro Psych Initiative. See for yourself and tell us what you think. To get a special preview of the collection, go to macmillanlearning.com forward slash Sykes Sessions.